Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In last year's The Case for Trump, the distinguished classical historian Victor Davis Hanson presented Donald Trump as a kind of tragic figure thrown up by history to expose the great contradictions of the American contemporary age. Um, so I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to uh, Victor David Hansen about Donald Trump and also uh, about uh, contemporary America. Um, in your book, uh, Victor, uh, The Case for Trump, I wasn't sure whether you present Donald Trump as a, a subject or an object of history. Is he in control of his fate or are the fates in control of him? Well, I don't think any American president is um, in control of of his destiny. Was it McMillan that said, it's events, boy, it's events that matter with a prime minister's fate. And so same thing with American president. Donald Trump was soaring uh, in December of 2019 with the biggest economic expansion and lowest unemployment in a half century and uh, record U.S. uh, gas and oil production, deregulation, a level of prosperity that had even reached the depressed conditions here in the San Joaquin Valley. And then suddenly now we're we're looking at a $4 trillion annual deficit and the largest uh, contraction in GDP and perhaps highest unemployment since the Great Depression. We will see how it turns out, how long the lockdown persists. So, of course, this is uh, a question I'm sure everybody is asking you, given the subject and title of your book. In May of 2020, given the consequences of the pandemic, is there still a case to be made for Donald Trump? Uh, Well, I don't think anything's changed. I mean, the book isn't, you know, go out and vote for Donald Trump, but it's an exegesis of why he won and what were the shortcomings of prior Republican candidates and the American left and why he was able to engineer a victory and why he was able to achieve pretty substantial economic growth uh, given the, the forces arrayed against him. And I don't, think, I don't think he caused the coronavirus. And when I look at what he said about it, and I collate that with what Anthony Fauci said about it or what Mario Cuomo, I don't think, I think he was even a little bit more prescient than they were. And then the travel ban was wise. And if I I always just look at history, I try to adjudicate uh, the only data that seem valid in this crisis or the number of people who have died from it, and even that has been debatable and versus the number of people in the population. So if I look at the American population and deaths per million people, and I compare that with similar sized countries, I don't trust the data coming out, of course, 
from uh, China. I don't think it's accurate in Russia either, but Europe is comparable. Then the United States, with the exception of Germany, is doing about pretty well in combating the virus. And so I've noticed that the virus seems to be, I don't know, leveling off and the number of cases per day is has peaked and it's declining. And so now the opposition to Trump seems to be more, he's not uh, a carrier of the plague, but he's Herbert Hoover, who's engineered a great depression, which requires kind of an about face in their critics. For the last 90 days, it was, he waited too long to enforce the lockdown and it was too limited. And for him to be Herbert Hoover, of course, it'll have to be that he allowed the lockdown to go on too long and it was too widespread. And I don't know how that's going to work in November. I I always think, once a a classical historian, always a classical historian, is there something classical about Trump? Would he be a figure perhaps who would be comfortable in a, in a Roman setting? Well, there's so many, there's such a larger cast of characters that we know of uh, in the Roman Senate. And so <clears throat> his enemies have, cons- you know, compared him to Caesar, a Caesarian, and, or maybe somebody like Mark Anthony, who was a little bit more uncouth. But I, I, in the book, I suggested that maybe he's more a Sophoclean character, somebody who has sort of an archaic way of looking at the world, the MAGA agenda, and he feels that he's a throwback to a prior age and that he has solutions that are still needed. And then people have called on him in extremists that otherwise wouldn't have anything to do with him, sort of like Sophocles Ajax or Philoctetes. And then he sort of uses means and methods and comportment and speech and behaviors that they find uh, unpalatable or uncouth, and yet he gets results. And then what happens to all of these figures, and you can think from the American Westerns of John Ford, the Searchers or the Magnificent Seven or High Noon or Shane, that the person who solved the problem then is sort of asked to leave and rides off because his... um, presence is a reminder that anybody needed somebody like him. And then when the dangerous past, they don't really need him anymore. So that was certainly true of American people in the past, like Curtis LeMay or George S. Patton. We can't believe we ever embraced them. But during the time in which they were leading U.S. forces, people didn't know what to do without them. So I think Trump doesn't quite understand that. Who could? But he seems to be bewildered that he gets no credit for the unemployment figures or the GDP figures or the deregulation or the energy development or be pretty being pretty prescient uh, before the coronavirus about what China was capable of doing. And yet he should realize that that's the lot that he's inherited. That the, the type of person he is is never going to get credit commiserate with what his achievements have been at least in the economic sphere. The 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 uh, classical society was, of course, very good at, at, at warning us about excessive self-love. The Greeks came up with the notion of narcissism. Um, is there something, do you think, that Trump could learn from classical Greece about an excessive reverence for the self? Well, certainly. I mean, the idea that narcissists is a... Is a uh, that was a Freudian later 
borrowing of that myth, there was, there's no, everybody in the ancient world, basically in the pre-Christian world, the, the ethos was to help your friends and hurt your enemies and have a high regard for yourself. That being said, there is something in classical literature about Tomesan, the moderate means, that is speak very quietly and be very active. Um, so yeah, I think that everybody who has been impressed with Trump's achievements would wish that in a press conference he doesn't stoop and get on the level of the people who are attacking him or he he doesn't, you know, little Marco or Sleepy Joe, but th why does he do that is the question and it's sort of a the cart before the horse or the chicken and the egg. I don't know the answer, but it is true that he's not necessarily preemptory, that he usually is retaliatory. He's like a coiled snake that bites if you bite him. So all of these spats he's had and feuds, it's usually the people have attacked him and then he's responded with megatonnage on the theory that if you don't have deterrence, you'll be continually attacked. He does, certainly doesn't believe in the Sermon on the Mount, that's for sure. <laughs> um whether you like him or not, what is astonishing about him is his level of energy. It is. What would, the, what would the ancients have thought of a man of such remarkable energy? Well, they did. I mean, they looked at Alexander or Julius Caesar in terms of energy, and they, uh, they were much more empirical and observant of a person's physical stature, the degree of sleep they needed, how much they ate, how active they were. And uh, they were, they really came to the conclusion that certain people can do certain things for reasons that we don't appreciate, but they did, that they had a, an immunity to illness. They didn't need as much sleep. They were constantly in motion. If you would put yourself in his place one day and wake up, it's, I guess it's 4.30 in the morning after five hours of sleep, and then eat what he does eat, and then have his family pillared, his children attacked, his wife made fun of, and then stroll out and face the Washington Press Corps, which the Harvard Media Center, the Shortstein Center says is 93% negative in all of its coverage of him. We've never seen that before, the network news and the media, print and visual. And then be able to conduct the country the way he does, and then go to bed at, at midnight, it, that's what's that's what's astonishing because Bernie Sanders is an average seventy-eight, and Joe Biden is a very old seventy-seven. Elizabeth Warren, I thought, was a quite young seventy, but even she is not quite have the energy as a septuagenarian like Trump at seventy-three. I've never seen anything like it before. What do you think it is about Trump that angers? the coastal elites in America so dramatically, so obsessively. Clearly, um, he's not a progressive. Clearly, one can explain it in political terms. But there's something more to that. It's almost as if he could be an invention of the elites, the antithesis of, uh, of, of their ideal. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is. I think there's two things going on. They feel the hatred was somewhat similar, although not as great, toward George W. Bush because they felt that he didn't win the popular vote and he robbed them of eight years. And I think there's some of that with Donald Trump. Had he won the popular vote by the same type of margin he won the Electoral College, they would have been a little bit more muted. 
And a lot of the people who I think conspired to abort his campaign, his transition, indeed even his presidency, uh, James Clapper, John Brennan, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Susan, all of those people were just assured that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Indeed, everybody thought she was going to win. All of the polls did. And that their behavior, rather than being criminal or borderline unethical or clearly unethical, excuse me, they were going to be rewarded for it by the Clinton administration that would uh, solidify an 18-year Obama-Clinton regnum. And then this guy came in out of nowhere with no political experience, no military experience. And against all of the odds, he was president. And that's part of it. The other part is that he doesn't fit our image of presidential comportment more importantly, elite comportment. He's got a Queens accent, and uh, he doesn't change. So he wears this ridiculously long tie. He wears this suit, <laughs> these shiny shoes. And when he goes places all over the country, his accent doesn't change. So if you remember, Hillary Clinton would go to the South, and she says, I'm so tired. And then Barack Obama would go into the inner city, and he'd adopt the patois of African-American youth of the ghetto. Or Joe Biden, you know, I'm going to put you all in change. But wherever Trump goes, he's both out of place and in place. He wears a tie among farmers. He wears a suit among factory workers. And that's out of place, but it's not because he radiates by doing so a sense of authenticity that people feel whatever he is, he's he's the same. But the way he talks, the way he acts, the way he looks, the orange skin, the flip over, whatever that hair is, the diet. People are sober and judicious in the Council on Foreign Relations, the Harvard faculty, uh, the Brookings Institution, uh, you know, the Guggenheim Foundation, PBS anchored. That's just not the way that they consider America should be seen. It's more of a slightly subdued European version of a statesperson with exquisite taste and reservation and rice or dry humor and, you know, repartee sort of like JFK or Barack Obama, but not this, not this, this is big time wrestling. And, and people make the mistake, you know, they, they want to get in the ring with him and they think, well, I'm so witty that I, I, I'll just tear him to pieces. And they don't realize that he's actually been in a wrestling ring as, as a promoter. And he doesn't mind wrestling and going, you know, mano to mano with all of these people. So they usually, end up losing you mentioned professional wrestling of course wrestling isn't really a sport it's uh it's a media production and many people suggest that trump himself is a is a as a virtual reality star or a, a soap opera star what would the ancients have made of that uh, can we and i mean this may be a rather vulgar thing to say but was homer in a sense the inventor of virtual reality or of soap opera well that's a big, I mean, actors in general had a very poor reputation in the ancient world because they were considered emulators. They didn't have, uh, Plato's Ion, he has a long dialogue about people who mm. just mouth and act, but you shouldn't confuse their ability to recite with original thinking. That being said, uh, they put a high emphasis, uh, if you read Cicero's De Oratore or some of Longinus, they put a very high emphases on um, 
the ability to speak well, extemporaneously especially, and the use of hand gestures, and even the repetition of vocabulary. We think that Trump has an impoverished vocabulary of about 500 words, you know, tremendous, gigantic, uh, (laughs) he's a disaster, she's a disaster, but that... Horrible, he uses the word horrible a lot. (laughs) Yes, and that that repetition is often a alliterative device and a repetitious device, according to classical rhetoric. So he's uh, he doesn't believe in variatio, changing his vocabulary and, and using synonyms, but he's very he gets a very simple message across in an emphatic manner, and he understands ratings. And so you'll notice that when he attacks people, he'll say that person's ratings are terrible or no, my press conference got more ratings than they do. And that is always an object of caricature by his enemies. But what he's saying is I'm saying things that people want to hear and they're not. If the White House correspondence doesn't want him there, he'll say, I don't need to go there. They got terrible ratings. And it all, it also helps him when he started on the idea that in a cost benefit analysis, these wars in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, or Libya weren't worth it. He always said they're bad ratings, they're just not worth it. And what he meant was that uh, there's bad optics and they don't please the American people and they're not, they don't have good ratings and they don't pencil out. And everybody who said, well, that's horrible, that, that, that's immoral that because these are, these are wars of liberation or democratization or for, on behalf of the downtrodden. Well, it's very hard to make that argument all the time. In terms of optics and narratives, how do you see the pandemic fitting in, not just to the the Trump presidency, but the history of, of the United States of America? Easy question. Yeah, well, I, as a historian, I tried to imagine earlier pandemics, and there were three or four that come to mind. The 1918 flu, and I'm sitting in the house where my grandparents Oh, God, it almost died, and I grew up with that story. In Central and, California. Yes, right? Central California on a farm, and that was about, you know, 500,000 Americans and a very small population of about 120 million parish. And then the 19, I lived through the 1958 flu. I can remember being in a, a steam tent in our little bedroom. That was about 120,000 Americans. And then I remember as a freshman in high school being very ill on the wrestling team with the 67 Hong Kong flu that killed about 113,000. And then I remember being traveling uh, and speaking in Palm Beach, Florida, and getting the 2017 flu that killed supposedly about 65,000. All these are estimates, but we're about 85,000 dead. And the way that people game it is they say, well, these other flus, we weren't locked down as the way we are now. And therefore, this would have been even worse. It's, it's what's mysterious about this flu is that the data does not reassure people. And by that, I mean, if whatever your position is on it, if you look at the data in Europe, the United States, especially the Swiss have done a very good job with it. For people who are younger than 60 and don't have a comorbidity, then they have about two in a thousand chances from dying from it. But if you're over 65 and you have comorbidity, it's absolutely lethal for you. And then it seems to be horrific. It doesn't just send you off 
with a case of pneumonia like the flu does, it tortures the elderly before they die. And then every once in a while, a young healthcare worker who's been subject to enormous viral initial loads that their immune system cannot keep up with dies. So there's an object of terror that, that's in it that's not commiserate with the actual data about it. So when people say, you've got to get out there, people say, I don't want to die, even though there's very little chances they're going to die. And then the other thing that's really amazing is in the United States, maybe in Europe as well, the virus has been weaponized in the sense of politics. And that by that, I mean, if you're in a blue liberal state, then you want to err on the side of being locked down and have the government print money and expand the money supply and keep you going, especially for those on the coast who have salaried or pensioned wealth or savings or capital wealth. And then if you're an entrepreneur or you're a day laborer, if you're the other half and you've seen the underbelly of America a little bit more, you say, well, I, I live for this flu or that flu and the odds are not that bad and I want to go out and work then that prison, that divide is then further distilled by the election. It turns out that the people who want to go out and get the economy going and take some risk, or A, they want to because they don't want Trump to be Herbert Hoover and lose the election, and they're the type of people anyway that are sort of entrepreneurial uh that would vote for Trump. And then the other side, the other people feel the longer that California, Illinois, or New York's locked down, the, the more the government's got to go into deficit, the more Trump appears like Herbert Hoover, and this isn't that bad, and I have a salary, and I'm not going to go out. And their mentality is, life is pretty good for me. I make $300,000 or something a year, and I can afford to have a 99.99 chance uh, if I have a one in a thousand or two in a thousand chance of dying, I don't want to take it because life is just excellent for me. But where I'm living, I have a lot of Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant um, neighbors. Most, all of them are, to tell you the truth. And I'm looking out the window now down the street and a guy's got a barber chair. He's got about 50 people. He's illegally cutting their hair. There's another person with an illegal daycare center. There's people out buying lamb. He's got a pig and lamb, little two acres. He's selling meats fresh. And all of these people, I, if I were to ask them, I think their operating ideology would be, I've seen some pretty awful things in my life and a one or two percent chance of dying, a one or two in a thousand, a point two percent. That's nothing compared to what I have to deal with every day, but I do not want to go broke and I want to take care of my friends. So there's an economic, social, political divide in the country about the virus. So we're clearly, the virus obviously doesn't really have an identity, but we're all taking moral messages from it. Uh, finally, Victor, people are stuck at home. Not everybody um, has the benefit of being on a farm like you, but we're all stuck in small rooms doing nothing, twiddling our thumbs. What should people be reading apart from your books and particularly the case for Trump to make sense of our current predicament situation? What would you suggest? Well, you know, there's three or four. Um, Thucydides in the second book of his history has a clinical description of the plague, which we don't know what it was, typhus or typhoid that hit Athens during the war in 430. But it's famous not for the, just the clinical description, but the psychological reaction to it. And it's very 
similar to our, those who were very courageous and waited on the sick, they were rewarded by their virtue by being the first to die. And it's, it's very tragic. And then in 550 AD, a millennium later in the history of the wars, Procopius, the Byzantine historian of the reign of Justinian, has a really gruesome description of the bubonic plague and how finally the, the ability to get rid of bodies or to bury them was overwhelmed by the sheer number of deaths. And there's these very strange scenes of stacking bodies in the turrets of the great walls of Constantinople. The Decameron by Boccaccio, the whole subtext of those 10 stories are that they're out in the country, sort of like you and I are right now, I am, but you're all out in the country in the sense we're not working, we're locked down. And so there's storytelling. Many of the stories have something to do with the plague. And then finally, uh, La Peste, the plague by Camus about a North African outbreak is really a study in psychology. And I guess they all, all these descriptions have a Thucydidean common denominator that the, the veneer of civilization is actually pretty thin. And in war and plague, it gets scraped off and then human nature in its most raw form starts to appear. And uh, I'm reminded of that when I was in Walmart not too long ago and two people were fighting over the last bottle of hand cleanser, pulling on it. Or I saw in the parking lot a homeless person that somehow got his hands on 24 rolls of tissue paper or toilet paper. And he, she was, she, it was a she, was selling it to a woman in a Range Rover who rolled down the window to buy it. So civilization is not as... Uh, is durable or is immune from its savagery as we think. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.